Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the country from my flagship station, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We've got the Omicron, or as Joe Biden says, Omicron. It's Omicron uh, variant of COVID. It's it's not something new. It didn't We didn't jump from Delta to Omicron. There have been uh, all sorts of variants in between. Some got news like Lambda. Most of them didn't. But here we are. And I thought, who best to talk to about this? And probably uh, we've had immunologists on and epidemiologists on, but what about the emergency room doctors who are on the front lines of this stuff? I've got a friend who is an emergency room doctor, got his medical degree at, at Morehouse College and then did his residency with Emory University and now is an emergency room doc in addition to being a Marine uh, in one of the largest suburban urban areas of the Southeast, Gwinnett County, Georgia. That is uh, my friend Rich McCormick, who was also a candidate for Congress in the 7th uh, last time. Rich, how are you? Good, sir. How are you? Great. So let me, let's back up uh, before we get into this current uh, variant, Omicron, and what you think about it, too. The beginning days of COVID, what was it like to be an emergency room doctor? Scary times. We, uh, the nursing staff, uh, were exposed repeatedly. Uh, we were exposed before we even really knew it was in the United States. Uh, people were getting fevers and, and uh, having all the symptoms of the disease process without even having a testing process, without having good uh, protective gear, without knowing really how to treat this disease. This is a whole, when you have a novel virus, not knowing how it affects you, how easily it's uh, spread, and what the outcome can be is, uh, is an alarming thing, very stressful thing for the ER uh, we, it was funny. We actually emptied out the ER at the beginning because nobody wanted to come to the ER and be exposed to it. And, uh, we saw a huge amount of, uh, of just very deadly disease take place, especially with our vulnerable populations. It was high, high mortality rate with, uh, especially those people that had conditions that made them susceptible to the disease. And along the way as well, I, I, I can imagine you were dealing with people who they, they put off and put off and put off going to the emergency room for other things. And then suddenly you're dealing both with COVID and with suddenly people who have critical conditions that put off actual uh, preventative care. Absolutely. My wife's an oncologist and she's seen a huge uptick in, uh, in cancers that were more advanced because people didn't want to come in and get checked out. Uh, we've seen the same thing with some heart conditions. Uh, we've seen a huge uptick in psychiatric illnesses. Uh, as you probably realized, uh, we had over 100,000 people overdose on drugs and die. Uh, that's just the people who died. Think about if you have 100,000 people who overdose to the point where, where they stop breathing, 
uh, the amount of millions of people that are actually affected by this on everyday living where their families are, are dealing with drug addictions, with uh, depression, anxiety, where kids are, are uh, absolutely burdened with this same uh, just mentality of fear. Now, along the way, as we learned more about COVID, we had different uh I guess prescriptions coming down from Washington, don't wear a mask. The first responders need it to then wear a mask to now always wear your mask to stay inside. And like I said early on, a a lockdown for a month here in Georgia while hospitals built up their resources kind of made sense. And some states now you've got the federal government, even Joe Biden, not ruling out future lockdowns. It just, it seems like the advice from Washington has been ever changing and no one really trusts what to do. What you, you as a doctor, what do you tell people who have questions about uh, how to navigate the process of COVID? Sure. Well, first of all, realize that nobody has a corner on on everything that is COVID. No, not Fauci. Nobody. Maybe especially not Fauci in some cases because I do think he's been politicized as well. And the one thing that the government has not done well is, is try to get people to look to the government for answers rather than their doctors. Uh, everybody is unique in their challenges to healthcare, uh, what their comorbidities are, what kind of medications they take, uh, how this can affect them and their family, how old their family might be. Uh, it really merits a good discussion with your physician rather than a politician. Uh, I was just talking to one of, the, one of the congressmen just last night, and he said, it's funny, I'm having call, people call my office and ask for advice on what to do for COVID. Gosh, go talk, go, go talk to your doctor and, and turn this back into something not political. Matter of fact, the biggest challenges we've had in, in handling this is the pushback when you when you force people to do something. There's a natural tendency for a certain segment of Americans to say, "You're not going to tell me what to do," and it actually makes medicine more difficult to deal with. Yeah, I bet so. Um, it, it, it's it, to some degree, I guess, it's an endearing tendency of Americans to push back on authority, and at the same time, we we do have this virus, and now we've got the Omicron variant, and it sounds like. There's been a massive freak out in advance of even any known cases coming into the country. And, and not only that, but also what, how deadly this disease is. If you listen to the physicians that are treating this in South Africa and, and what they're saying about it, it doesn't seem to be any more. As a matter of fact, it might even be less deadly than other variants we've faced with, uh, especially the Alpha, Bravo and, and uh, Delta variants. Uh, I don't see it being more dangerous. We don't know that it's resistant to the vaccination, even though they're talking about having new spike proteins. Uh, but there's certainly just no evidence that this is going to be a more deadly disease than we already have. And what I'm concerned with is with we're going to have multiple more variants this in the near, next few months. And I'm concerned that this is going to be an excuse for more government overreach. I, I heard a kind of a pun on this where, where you talk about the ultimate end variant is going to be communism. Uh, and, and that's because people keep on overreacting to this. And we've seen where we've had multiple states that have had the most draconian control measures have not had be- better outcomes. They have just as much death, if not more. Uh, right now, you can see these northern states that, that have huge restrictions on mask mandates and vaccinations and work. And, and uh, they're having a huge outbreak up in the north, whereas down in the south where you've had open societies and people mingling and going to football games, uh, the prevalence just isn't as great. So I'm not sure that we're doing all the right things to control this and that we're not taking natural immunity into account. Uh, I do want people to be vaccinated, uh, by and large, who are over the age of 40, especially who have risk factors, because 
the statistics are just there. I mean, you're 11 times more likely to die, uh, 29 times more likely to be admitted if you're not vaccinated. But I get it, and, and I understand people who don't want to be vaccinated, especially people who have already had the disease. Uh, you have a natural resistance, at least for some time, anywhere from six to 12 months. And, and uh, I get why people wouldn't want to be re-exposed and have some sort of hyperimmune response. Uh, so there is a concern, and especially with young people, too, who don't have the same uh, mortality rates. Uh, there are certain risks versus benefits that have to be taken into account. Look, that's that's well said, I, and I appreciate you uh, coming in to talk about that. But and now I, I want to talk to you about something else as well. You in 2018, and I'm, I'm getting my years mixed up now, suddenly it's 20, uh, ran in the 7th Congressional District uh, against Carolyn Bordeaux, a district that has trended Democrat over time, uh, naturally due to, to population growth. Uh, you, you didn't pull it off, but you came very close. And now you got Lucy McBath in Georgia, the congresswoman who's probably the largest anti-gun advocate in the country, uh, jumping into that race against Bordeaux, who, is, although very progressive, handled herself very moderately in this Congress. And a lot of people were thinking you would run against Bordeaux again. You had sent some signals there. That district now is so unwinnable for a Republican. Uh, I, and I'm hoping that your days in politics are not done yet. Um, no, so I, I think I we put you on the spot here. Well, thank you. I, 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 I'm going to make the official announcement right now, uh, since we're getting ready to make our press release. Anyways, we're definitely running in the six. Uh, it's going to come. It's going to take about 30% of the district. We just ran in uh, combined with about the same amount from the sixth and then about another 30% from the ninth and the 11th. Uh, I think it'll be a great district for us, and I'm looking forward to the new challenge. Well, and now, of course, this is opening me up. I'm going to have to figure out how to get other candidates on. But there are a lot of candidates in the 6th Congressional District, uh, and you have uh, won the nomination, I guess, this last time. But uh, this this is going to be a district where you're going to have a big fight on your hands, it looks like. It will be, but I think financially we're secure. We're, we're definitely in the mix, top five in the nation for funds raised against Democrat incumbent. Uh, we have the name recognition. Uh, we have o- almost 30 congressional endorsements. Uh, the majority of uh, Republicans in Georgia have endorsed us. Uh, we have great local support and uh, a great down game. I have the best team in the world, so I'm, I'm just really excited about this. And, and I think if you look at my resume of service uh, to my community as a, as a minister and, and as a physician and as a Marine, I, I, think, uh, I think I stand on that. Now, let me talk to you about this balancing your your work life because you ran for Congress in in 2020 and and you got that experience in in juggling all these balls. But you were actually an emergency room doctor while also running for Congress. How do you make that work and spend time with your lovely family? Tell your wife I said hi, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, uh, By grace, Uh, prayer and and, uh, caffeine keep me going. Uh, but, but I think I, I have to rely on grace from the family. I'm almost an empty nest. Now I got one more kid left in the, in the school, uh, as a senior, uh, I got two you can have. Good me. <laughs> I, well, after the seven that we've raised, uh, I think we, we've done our part. Uh, you know, I, I love <laughs> children, uh, but I think the time has come for another poor, another stage in life where it's time to, uh, just step up and continue service in a different way. And, and, uh, and it was actually going to battle with Republicans that got me involved with this, uh, you know, people who were uh, selling out to special interests, you know, when it came to uh, surprise billing. And when I went down with a bipartisan group uh, of doctors down to the Capitol trying to solve a very real problem for 50 percent of Americans, uh, we need to do what's right. We need to do what's right now and, and, uh, and not get involved in, in the special interest, but really talk about we the people. It shouldn't be about a politician. It should be about the people. 
Well, yeah, okay, so this raises an issue, and, and let me pull it out of the campaign per se and into, you're talking about surprise billing. Republicans right now seem to, on the healthcare front, be running as we're, we're not Democrats. Uh, they tried that we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare, and they failed with Republican votes there. I mean, when you think about the healthcare challenges that we have, people in Washington try to break it down to something very simple and, and not necessarily something that's actually the problem. How do you, particularly being in an emergency room where so many people go who don't have insurance, how do you see this problem? Well, I, I get to witness failed policy firsthand. I mean, that's what I do for a living. Uh, I, I literally see people without insurance come in. I've watched uh, the runaway prices. Basically, you know, doctors don't make any more than they did uh, 10 years ago. And matter of fact, I don't think our, our, our reimbursements keep up with inflation. But meanwhile, you see this huge increase in healthcare cost uh, spending. And you can talk about monopolistic practices of, of uh, hospitals. You can talk about uh, pharmaceuticals. You could talk about insurance companies. There's a lot of special interest up in D.C. And just recently, they came up with a bill to handle surprise billing on a federal level. We already did that here in Georgia. It took us three tries to get it passed. We have something that's very good here in Georgia. But the question is, is D.C. now going to circumvent that by saying we're going to take away uh, the state rights by having a federal way to do this, but much more self-serving to special interests. And, and what we saw is Congress passed a pretty good comprehensive bill on surprise billing, and then the bureaucrats literally took it and rearranged it to totally get away from what they had tried to intend. And, and so there may be a lawsuit coming on that. But these are the problems. These are very complex issues that, uh, especially when it comes to health care, which will be one of the biggest costs in America in the next decade. Uh, matter of fact, if you went to a single-payer system, you're talking about adding $30 trillion to the national cost in the next 10 years. That's a conservative estimate. And, and, uh, and that doesn't mean better health care, by the way. That just means, and it's not free. $30 trillion is not free, but people will look at it that way, when, the way it's sold from the Democrats. But once you de-incentivize people to work hard, uh, the one good example we have of, of a one-payer system is uh, the VA. Widely despised as one of the worst health care systems uh, in, in that kind of market. And, and I just think we're really in trouble if we don't have good creative solutions to this with, uh, you know, pricing transparencies, uh, funded HSAs that can roll over, giving people the motivation to make the right decisions that help a free market react to the most efficient way of delivering medicine while still maintaining the quality. And that's a complex uh, discussion. I think the doctor's caucus needs more doctors in. Well, look, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you raised the VA because I, I'm, you're probably aware WSB-TV has done a report now on the thousands of scans at just the Atlanta VA over a number of years that never even made it into patients' records. So doctors never even reviewed them. And, and the number of people who uh, were not treated or mistreated because the doctors weren't aware of their scans, that's, that is such a horrible system. And with your medical background and both being a Marine as well, uh, taking on that system, it seems like everyone always campaigns on fixing the VA, and we've still got this mess that continues to fester. There's a lot of ways to help the VA a lot. I think uh, we kind of run our course when it comes to this system because we're not able to fix it through the government. We keep on turning the government. I, I personally believe that we should incorporate it back into uh, civilian health care and make it competitive again because there's just not a whole lot of motivation. There's there's a, a hospital in South Dakota that has a census sometimes, a weekly census of nine patients. Uh, the, the surgeons hardly do any surgeries. If it's anything complex, they send them out. So really there's no cost effectiveness to whatsoever, but yet it's protected as a cash cow for that district by its representative and by its senator. 
uh, not because it's a good hospital, but because it brings money to the community. That's just the wrong way of doing government, and that's one of the problems we have. Look, I, I could spend all day talking to you about this, but I'm out of time. I, I wish you the best of luck and, and really appreciate your insight onto COVID as well. Um, it's nice to get an emergency room doctor perspective on there. Uh, thank you for stopping by. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. God bless you, and uh, thanks for everything you do for America. You too. Rich McCormick, uh, now running for the 6th Congressional District here in Georgia, Marine uh, emergency room doctor, went to Morehouse College and then did his residency at Emory, has been on the front lines fighting COVID and seen it firsthand in Gwinnett County, the fastest growing part of the Southeast. We'll be right back. My wife was so excited when Bull and Branch became an advertiser because she'd been wanting some of their sheets. And guess what? They sent them. Not only did they send them, but we've got a very thick mattress and they're deep pocketed sheets. So they don't snap off in the middle of the night like some sheets and they haven't shrunk. They've gotten softer the more you've washed them, the more we've washed them, but they don't shrink up. So they snap off the bed. Look, there are a lot of cyber deals out there this week, and so many of them, you're getting like the TV with minus the HDMI port you want, stuff like that. With Bull and Branch, you get what actually Bull and Branch sells, and they're a great team. Scott and uh, Missy Tannen, they're the founders of Bull and Branch. It's a small business, but they have taken off around the United States through smart advertising, but smart advertising connected to a superior, great product. Their signature hymn sheets are an all-time bestseller. So many reasons. They're so soft. They get softer over time, and they don't shrink freak up. They're great. This Cyber Week, gift your loved one the best sleep of their lives or treat yourself with Bowl and Branch. Their holiday packaging, their famously soft sheets, pl- pillows, blankets, many more. They make a difference. Everybody can feel. You get 25% off now through December 2nd with their best offer of the year at bowlandbranch.com. That's 25% off at B-O-L-L and branch.com. Exclusions may apply. Hello and welcome. I, I got to revisit the subject of Pfizer because I was looking at their first quarter results and, and not their whole year results. But this is really frustrating me and I need to put it in perspective for you. You know, it, all the, the president's men or whatever uh, on Nixon in the movie discussed following the money. It wasn't actually in the book that the movie was based on uh, by Woodward and Bernstein. Follow the money. And everybody likes to say follow the money. and They sound very smart. And so there's this conspiracy theory developing on the right that Pfizer uh, wants to perpetuate COVID because it's making a lot of money. You know how much money Pfizer is going to make off of COVID this year? $26 billion, according to uh, Pfizer's own uh, CEO and CFO. They expect $26 billion to be made this year just on COVID. And so people say, well, they've, they've got to keep it going. They've got to perpetuate it. And it certainly superficially makes sense to people. It's like the people who say, well, we'll never cure cancer because the pharmaceutical companies won't make any money. First of all, what you're doing is you're doing what the left does by saying that pharmaceutical companies are bad. No, actually, we wouldn't have a vaccine for uh, COVID, but for the pharmaceutical companies, we should be praising them and allowing them the profit motive. It's why capitalism is good. You give a you give a profit motive, you allow people to reap uh, profits off of their inventions, and everyone benefits. Twenty six billion dollars. They made uh, several billion dollars in the first quarter, but you know how much money Pfizer expects to make this year? I'm I'm looking at their financial statement right now. You know how much revenue they made 26, but they expect 26 billion in revenue off of COVID alone. Do you know how much money overall Pfizer expects to make this year? Between 71 and 73 billion dollars. In other words, 
They expect to make $26 billion this year off of COVID and, and the vaccine. They expect to make $45 billion off of non-COVID stuff. In fact, Eliquis, Celebrix, they have a new cancer drug out, a new chemotherapy drug out, a new uh, prostate cancer drug out. The uh, Zetandi is their prostate cancer drug. Operational growth of 28%. Their oncology alone brought in $2.8 billion in just the first quarter. Combined with their over-the-counter drugs and other drugs, they almost match what they brought in for COVID. And then total for the entire year, expect $45 billion more to come from non-COVID than COVID. So Pfizer's been around since the 1800s. It would survive without the COVID vaccine. To think that Pfizer has a vested interest in perpetuating COVID is nonsense, not supported by any data, but because someone told you it on the internet and you didn't think about it and immediately gravitated towards it, you may think it makes sense, but it doesn't. It's crazy conspiracy theory talk, $45 billion. If they spent more time researching other stuff than COVID, they could probably make even more money. But then that's not a conspiracy theory and you want to believe the conspiracy theory. Follow the money. If you follow the money, you'll find out it doesn't need COVID at all to be profitable. Howdy. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. To the phones we go. Luke, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. Eric, it's a pleasure. I really do appreciate all the gifts you guys share with us. Um, you're a truly blessed man, and thank you for sharing it. Um, thank you. I just really wanted to go back to the adoption abortion conversation, and I do respect, and like you're saying, if there is going to be a drastic change, we have to be prepared and do it the wisest way. But I think sometimes, to quote one of my favorite uh, artists, we miss the point. We focus on the finger. And we miss the point, and by missing the point, we dull the point as well. I think what we really need to be focused on are the children that are children now that are alive and stop centralizing everything, bring more respect into the act of sexualization, be more prepared so that the abortion adoption level decreases while we also respect ourselves and other people more. Yeah, you know, that that's a great point. And interestingly enough, I, so I'm, I'm in a slack group with some folks who are actually talking about this very issue right now and one of them made a point that you know we're at the lowest rate of abortion in this country in it is since roe versus wade not because of restrictions but because fewer and fewer people are actually having babies to begin with and fewer and fewer kids are having sex and and ironically it's not because we've gotten more moral and we've been teaching our kids to do the right thing it's it's for some reason uh, the younger generations now are not actually engaged in relationships at all, let alone having sex at all. And it's actually causing a population decline in the country. And how do we now incentivize and encourage kids to get married, stay married, have kids without also encouraging a promiscuity that leads to an uptick in abortion? That's the balancing act that uh, people like you and me and, and people in churches with some moral grounding are going to have to have to be able to navigate. You know, ironically, the only people in this country who are engaged in creating large families are Hispanic Protestants, immigrants to this country who are Hispanic and Protestant are most likely to have the largest families. After them, committed evangelicals, 
are most likely to have the largest families. And in fact, evangelicals in this country are also very likely uh, to have mixed race families through adoption. This is one of those weird things that I wasn't going to talk about, but now I'm going to talk about it because it popped in my head. One of the weirdest things that is happening in the undercurrents of our country right now that you are probably not even aware of, and I am only aware of it because of some of the friends I have, is there is a growing movement in this country among the alt-right, the kind of uh, white nationalist conservatives, and among the far left in this country who are just kissing cousins. I don't know if y'all have seen the uh, comedy bit that has circulated online of the of the woke and the racist, and they all be- they believe the same thing, and it's it's actually deeply funny when you realize how much the wokes and the racists believe the same things. One of the things they believe is that interracial and international adoption is bad. There is a growing movement on the left to insist that if a white couple chooses to adopt a non-white baby, that they must be forced to indoctrinate that child into some perceived uh, culture of the child's race or be prohibited at all from adopting a child of a different race. Same way the white nationalists out there on the alt-right do not want you at all in any way, shape, or form to adopt outside your race. People should be able to adopt any child, but the far left and the far right uh, do not like you to adopt outside your race. Not only that, both sides agree, the far left and the far right, that international adoption needs to be made harder. One of the things that Barack Obama did, well, let let me back up. One of the good things George W. Bush did is he made it easier to engage in international adoption. There is not a ton that the federal government can do with domestic adoption. There's some with the tax code and incentivizing adoptions, allowing larger tax credits, not just deductions for the cost of, of adoption and some federal financial incentives, but a lot of adoption laws at the state level. And it's there where a lot of inroads can be had. But George W. Bush, when he was president, one of the things he did was made it very easy to engage in international adoptions. When Barack Obama became president, in addition to being very hostile to the culture of life, going after little sisters of the poor, the nunnery and things like that, going after Christians, Barack Obama's administration began to put regulations in place, making it really hard to adopt internationally to drive up the costs, to drive up the bureaucracy, to drive up the uh, ability to turn your child into an American citizen after adoption, Barack Obama's administration made it deeply, deeply, disturbingly hard to do. And then Donald Trump became president and started undoing all of that, uh, but could only move so quickly and did not get it all undone. Towards the end of the Trump administration, though, when people on the far right, the alt-right, realized what was happening, they tried to get uh, the Trump administration to stop Uh, rolling back the impediments to international adoption. Uh, The Trump administration, to their credit, uh, dug their heels in and rapidly tried to undo all the damage Barack Obama had done. And now the Biden administration is trying again to make it harder. And at the same time, China and Russia, two of the major outlets from which to get children, are making it hard. China is imposing onerous burdens on families uh, and adoption agencies. If you're an adoption agency allowed to do business in China, you must require... The family do yearly video updates of the children to be sent to the Chicoms and uh, have the children 
talk about how much they love their fatherland, their motherland, uh, China. And essentially, they're doing facial recognition, uh, building up a database of adopted children abroad that they can one day come for. And also, there have been numerous cases, not very well reported in the American media, of families taking their adopted Chinese children to China to show the children their roots and where they came from, and then the children are not allowed to leave China. The parents are blocked at the airport from taking their kids out of the country. This is happening. Uh, Russia has made it very difficult for the very same reason to uh, adopt children from Russia for a lot of international reasons. There are, frankly, some Americans who have preferred to adopt from Russia because they get a baby who looks more like them. International adoption and interracial adoptions in this country are burdened by the political opportunists of the alt-right and the left. And we as a nation need to decide whether adoption is worthy or not. And if adoption is worthy, and it is, we should make it as easy as possible for people to adopt regardless of the race of the child. We should put every child in a loving home, not every child in a loving home of their race. Uh, some of the, the deeply racist undercurrents out there, there, there is a subset of people in this country who were adopted. Largely, they were adopted by white families. Uh, they are from either out of the country or of a different race, and they've become prominent on the left as being voices of hatred of their parents for not teaching them about their race, for not teaching them, indoctrinating them into their culture of race. Uh, and I've known people who have been racked with guilt for raising a non-white child and not uh, allowing that child ties into their culture. And I, I, I find the whole thing absurd. You've raised this child, rescued this child from an abortion or an orphanage. You've given this child a loving home. You've raised this child as your child, and now you're worried. You're upset. You've guilted yourself because the left in particular has guilted you over this. No, that's ridiculous. Stop it. You loved your children. There is a coming war on adoption in this. And, and by the way, it's it's going to be even worse if Roe is overturned. You're going to see the alt-right and, and the wokes be hand-in-hand, hand, making it as difficult as possible uh, to do uh, adoptions in this country efficiently, cost-effectively. And then they're going to say, well, look, we told you so. Might as well bring back abortion. Might as well bring back abortion. Can't adopt the kids. Might as well do it. It was a failure. You didn't really mean it. Meanwhile, they're the ones throwing up impediments. So you're not going to get a fair hearing by the media. You know how this game is going to be played. It's, it's ridiculous, but also very predictable that that's where we're headed. You know where else we're headed? Um, we're headed towards more censorship from Twitter. And this in and of itself is going to be a problem. Jack Dorsey has stepped aside at Twitter. He was probably, uh, from what we're hearing today, one of the last people at Twitter who wanted a free exchange of ideas on Twitter the wokes at Twitter have largely taken control of the company. You know, if, if you misgender someone, you call someone who's a woman a woman, but they've decided they're a man, you, you get banned at Twitter. If you call Ellen Page Ellen Page because Ellen Page now wants to be called Elliot Page, you get banned at Twitter. Um, and now the new CEO at Twitter says you're no longer allowed to share pictures of private citizens against their will. And if you share pictures of a public person for harassment purposes, that also will get you in trouble at Twitter. You know what's really going on here? There's a larger issue going on as Twitter clamps down on citizen journalism, which has exploded on the right as the left has engaged in uh, hackery within the mainstream media. 
a lot of what is happening right now and what you can understand in society is the left is slowly coming to terms with the fact that they no longer have a cultural monopoly. If you think about it, for many years up until recently, the left controlled what was funny. The left controlled what was entertainment. The left controlled what was news. The left controlled uh, culture. What you shopped at, where you shopped, uh, who you did business with. Uh, The left controlled these things through a cultural monopoly. But actually, over time, what has happened is the right has developed its own enterprises and outlets, its own comedians, its own base of culture and entertainment and politics and news. And the left's response is that the right is somehow doing it wrong or it's not very funny and you shouldn't be allowed to laugh at this. But also what the left has done is they have created a perpetual class of professionals. Now, the professional class is largely controlled by the left. But now they can say, well, you're not getting your news from professionals. It's not that you're not getting your news from the left. It's you're not getting your news from professionals. And then they have guarded the class of professionals and who can become a professional to ensure that only the left can become professionals. And now they seek to punish you if you're not getting your news or entertainment, your values, your humor, you name it, from the professional class. So you watch a TikToker who's conservative. Well, that's not the professional class. We should ban this person for seeding disinformation. You you get your, your news from somebody on talk radio. Well, that's not the professional class. Anybody can get behind a microphone and talk for three hours without a script. Anybody can do that. We need to ban that person. And on and on it goes as the left decides now to try to regain its monopoly on culture in the country, but do so in the name of a professional class. And Twitter, which is of the left and run by the left, is embracing this idea of the professional class, that you, the citizen journalist, you, the Project Veritas, you're not really a professional journalist. Therefore, you have no value in your work product and we can ban you. That's what's going on here. So much of the current cultural controversy in this country is not about the right, but about the left and the left's loss of monopoly and loss of control of culture. And when you understand that, so much of the way the left is reacting to stuff online and off makes a whole lot more sense. Now, I will tell you what makes sense for you. You are thinking of gifts for people for Christmas. And you know friends who, well, let's say they have a cat in the house and it smells like the litter box, or they've got allergies and dust, mildew, mold. Why don't you get them an Eden Pure Thunderstorm? Why don't you get a three-pack? In fact, right now, if you go to EdenPureDeals.com and you click on my name, Eric Erickson, you will see you can get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms. You can save $200 off the retail price. You can get all three of them for less than $200 and you can get free shipping. So you can keep them for yourself, one for upstairs, one for downstairs, one for maybe your RV. You can give three of them to three different friends. You get three of them, after all, for less than 200 bucks. It's a great deal and a great air purifier, the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. What you do, go to EdenPureDeals.com, click on my name, Eric Erickson, put the Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack in your shopping cart, and at checkout, you'll see a discount code. That discount code is ERIC3, E-R-I-C-K in the number three. If you use ERIC3, you will get $200 in savings, get all three of them for less than $200, and get free shipping for the holidays. EdenPureDeals.com, the discount code is ERIC3. 
Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to have you joining me. You, you know, one of the funny things about the media right now that I just, I continue to laugh at is how prominent journalists in the country who have large soapboxes clearly are not the brightest people or, or they're not the, the most well-traveled people. Now, I, so I got to, this is, I wouldn't say it's a chip on my shoulder. It was an intimidation factor. When I got hired by CNN back in 2009, I mean, the pitch was we're a company based in Georgia. We got nobody who looks or sounds like they're from Georgia on our, on our TV network. We'd like you to kind of be the voices conservatives outside the beltway. And it worked great. I, I had a great three years. I would have stayed at CNN, except they were always trying to fire me for saying something on radio they didn't like. So I went over to Fox for five years. It was great. But, you know, at Fox and CNN, I always encounter people. They were Harvard grads. They were big names. They'd been on the networks for a while. And I just, we'd engage with each other. And a lot of them were not that bright. I mean, there are people on the networks, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, you name it, who are political strategists or campaign strategists. And all they did was lick envelopes in the back office of a campaign somewhere. And suddenly they're a campaign. Tra- they don't know the first thing about it. And actually, it was a great way for me on, on TV being intimidated by being with these big, famous people to make friends is that the ones like, for example, James Carville. And Paul Begala, Donna Brazil at CNN, they actually really did run campaigns. They actually knew what they were talking about. Whether I agree with them or not, they knew what they were doing. Same with Mary Matlin, uh, Alex Castellanos, and, and Ari Fleischer. They knew what they were talking about. They actually had run in politics or run a presidential administration. They actually had experience, as opposed to some of the people who didn't. And it was it was really, you could tell it. And so when I read stuff now, like Paul Krugman wanting to know, why that? Why property in Austin, Texas, is so expensive? Or uh, Farid Manju on on is it really climate and the impact on climate change that has people moving to Dallas, Texas? Like you people are in a bubble with your head up your back, probably looking for your brain in your colon. It makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and these are the people who the media values as voices, and so many of the people who are in the New York Times or on the TV networks, particularly the big three, ABC, CBS, and NBC. They're well-traveled internationally because they make a lot of money. They can take trips to Europe, uh, vacations to Europe, but they're not well-traveled locally. They don't understand what a po' boy is. Maybe maybe at an abstract level they do. They don't understand uh, the gas station food culture of the South. They don't understand people in the South or in the Midwest or the Rust Belt, they just, they think about them abstractly. And this shapes the news culture in this country and fosters the distrust and mistrust of the media in the country. They should travel more. They should take a road trip. And none of them do except during political times. And they fly back and forth. They'll fly into Des Moines, but they won't see the rest of Iowa. Iowa's actually a really neat place. Uh, I'm not on the radio in Iowa. I, I hope one day to be on the radio in Iowa. I love Iowa. Uh, my gosh, the fried pork sandwiches, they pound out pork tenderloin paper thin and, and fry it and put it between a bun. You got the, like the sheet of paper hanging out of a bun. It's incredible stuff. I love Iowa, the food culture. That's why I'm fat. I like to eat. But my gosh. You don't get a lot of journalists who go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I am on the radio. They don't really understand the culture of Oklahoma or, frankly, even Ohio. 
They they don't get the divides. They don't get the disconnects. They, they don't get the process there. And yet they're writing about the news and opining on things they don't understand as if they do. At least get out and talk to people. And so we get these crazy stories on, on how the Supreme Court is going to end abortion in America or why people are moving to Dallas, Texas. And none of it makes any sense. It's all very bizarre. But this is the American news culture we have today, which is why so many people are going on the Internet or talk radio to find real news. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution. If you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business, First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family, come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. They say yes, where big banks say no. It's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan, say Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. Firstlibertyga.com. 